When I had come down this hill, I had seen this creature cross the road. It would have ripped my locked door from my truck, extracted me from my vehicle, and there would have been a damn thing I could have done about it. This thing, I got to notice in its eyes. Its eyes was real, real evil, real sinister looking. You know, the look it was giving me. Welcome to Bigfoot Hotspot Radio, Sasquatch Chronicles. I'm your host, Wes, along with my brother, Woody, and researcher, author, and friend, William Jeffy. Let's start the show. This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash Bigfoot Hotspot for your free 30-day trial and your free first downloadable book. You know, we've been talking with our sponsor about these burial sites and some of these different locations that we have between the Columbia River and Mount St. Helens. And a lot of people, a lot of people I think would enjoy going up to check out some of these burial sites that we have or potential burial sites. The mounds on them just doesn't look right. It's not man-made. It's not natural, the formation of some of these burial sites. Uh, I just have this odd feeling we're going to find something in there. But I was thinking, as I was talking with our sponsor, our sponsor had mentioned that if we can get up to 5,000 people sign up for the trial, whether they continue the trial or not, but at least sign up for the trial, they will sponsor and pay for to have five people fly out to Washington, out here in the Pacific Northwest, and go out with us for one week to check out some of these burial sites, to check out some of these I know we have, uh, I think it's five locations between the Columbia River and Mount St. Helens that are always hot. I thought that was kind of a cool offer from them. You know, I know 5,000 is kind of a big number, but uh, I thought that was kind of a cool offer for them to offer that to us and to our listeners. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great opportunity. It'd be a lot of fun for our listeners, you know, the five chosen, and uh, and for us to be able to show, you know, what we're doing and the possibility that we could find something under one of these locations. And not just that, but there are other things uh, we could show, you know, the five people who would be chosen, uh, some of the different things, possibly tracks, territorial markings, things like that, a lot of different things that we see in the field. So it is a great opportunity. And and, um, and as you mentioned, uh, or we're going to mention about, if they already had an Audible account, another way they could participate yeah, what I was thinking is, you know, again, the site is audibletrial.com forward slash Bigfoot Hotspot. doesn't cost anything. You're just signing up for a trial. You know, some people already have an Audible account. And I know a lot of listeners have sent you emails. They sent me emails saying, we already have an Audible account. 
so I set up a PayPal account, and the when you go to PayPal, you need an email address to send money to. The email address to send money to is BigfootHotspotRadio at gmail.com. BigfootHotspotRadio at gmail.com. What I was thinking is maybe we could take an additional five with us. You know, if you vote, if you put in ten bucks, uh, we'll put your... The way I'm thinking of, of doing this, unless the listeners have better ideas, doing some of a, somewhat of a drawing. So for aud- every Audible account that gets signed up, their name goes in a hat. If they want to donate, say for every $10, their name goes in the hat. If they put in 20 bucks, we'll put your name in the hat twice. And then come July, because uh, I think we're thinking about doing this at the end of July, correct, Will? That's right, yeah. Yeah, to get some, to some of these locations, it, it would be better to do it in July. In May, what we'll do is we'll pull names out of the hat, and at the end of July is when we'll actually go out and have this expedition. But when we'll we'll pull five out from Audible, and then we'll pull five out from the people that donated. Uh, it doesn't cost you anything. All this is going to be paid for. So, uh, you know, if you're out there in Texas, if you're out there in Connecticut, if you're out there in you know, different. You don't obviously live down the road. Uh, your plane ticket will be paid for. Your food will be paid for. Everything will be paid for. Um, and we'll go and take several people out to these locations. You know, I, I almost think I'd rather do something like that than a than a television show. It'd be kind of cool to take ten of our listeners out there. I was thinking too that uh, you know Renee DeHinden had. Well, let me back up just a little bit. Roger Patterson, when he filmed that Sasquatch in 1967. He made three footprint castings that day. One of the casts broke, but he was left with the left and the right foot. And Rene DeHinden had those two casts after Patterson died. And he loaned me those casts, and I made molds from those. So for the, the people who win the drawing, I'm going to give them each a copy of the left and right cast and copies of my books also. Yeah, we'll make it a good time. We'll make it a good time. I mean, like I said, those those burial sites that, that we've been looking at, I mean, I really feel like there's something there. There's something to them. And, I, and I've been on the edge of just going out there right now by myself and, and digging them up. But uh, I think it'd be kind of cool to get the listeners involved, have them be a part of the experience. And, you know, having 5, 10, 15 people with us isn't too out of the picture. You know, it's not too many to, to go and take out. A lot of these areas... I. It, especially up on Muffet Mountain and some of the areas around Mount St. Helens, uh, I don't think those Sasquatches care how many you bring up. So, so I think we'll be no, okay and, on and with you know the three of us, we could even break into smaller teams so we're not making such a big presence when we're going to areas. But it's something we'll have to uh, decide on you know, once we go into these places. But uh, the listeners, you know, whoever's chosen to go along, would have a great time and have a great experience. You know, we never quite know what we're going to experience when we go into one of these places. So, be prepared for anything. Yeah, yeah, be prepared for anything. Uh, I definitely be prepared for anything. I can tell you that much. Uh, but yeah, no. If if you would like to get your name in the hat, again, if you go to PayPal, it's Bigfoot Hotspot Radio at Gmail dot com. If you want to send a donation, like I said, ten bucks, get your name in the hat. Every time, every ten dollars you send, we'll just put your name in the hat again. If you sign up with Audible, we'll be able to pull your information from Audible, uh, your email address, 
and we'll put your name in the hat that way too as well. I'm looking forward to it. I think it's kind of a cool idea. I, you know, I'd rather do something like this and say, well, you can come with us, but it's going to cost you two grand and blah, blah, blah. You know yeah. I mean? No one has two grand to throw around. No, but, of um, and, and something listeners might consider too, one of the places we're going to are where you and Woody had your encounter. So for all you folks that, and we had a huge response and continue to get a big response about the show we did about your encounter, that's one of the places we're going to. And the Sasquatches are still in that area. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, uh, I'm telling you, man, that area is creepy. <laughs> it always has so been. Creepy. It always has been. I know tonight we have on the show Bobby. So let's bring Bobby on and hear his encounter, and then we will get to Bear. Well, Bobby, you um, had a number of uh, experiences from what we were discussing, you know, chatting on email. So I guess the um, the way to start, I guess, would be to just go and uh, and let you take the ball and go from your first encounter or first experience and sort of what led up to that, you know, maybe uh, what knowledge you had of the subject before this first encounter. Uh, well, I've always been into it. I mean, ever since I was like 10 years old, I mean, um, I remember we went to a library back when I was in school, and I they come across a book called uh, Mysteries, Little and Legends, or something like that. And it had a picture of a uh, Patty from the old Roger Patterson film. Just as soon as I saw that, I was hooked because I was thinking, oh, you know, there's a monster in the woods, I'm hooked. <laughs> so, and that, when you were a kid and you saw that, from that time on, when when was the first time uh, you had an experience and, and sort of what, you know, tell us what happened, what led up to that? Well, actually, the first time that I ever actually had an experience was um, when me and my son actually started going down into the area that I've been using. I had actually heard about it, but, you know, I had never really, you know, dealt with it because I always thought that, you know, you had to go out to California or, you know, Sierra or the Mexico or whatever to, to do this or up in the mountains. You know, I never knew that, you know, there was an area 30 minutes from my house that was that had a hot spot. Back around 2008, me and my son were down in one of the areas. We were sitting in the back of my truck, in the pickup truck, and uh, in the bed of it, and we were just sitting there talking. And it was about, I'm going to say, probably 10 o'clock at night. And over on the right-hand side of us, we started hearing what sounded like a, like, it actually sounded like a little girl. And she was going, whoop, making them whoop sounds. My son turned and looked at me, and he said, did you hear that? And at first, I just kind of played it off, because I thought, well, I'm not going to say anything, because I didn't want him to get scared. And we sat there, about five minutes later, he'd done it again. And he looked at me, and he said, now, you can't tell me you didn't hear that. And I said, yeah, I said, I heard that. And no sooner than we heard that whoop, on the left-hand side of us, we started hearing a knock on a tree. And it sounded just like somebody had a rock, and they were tapping on a tree. Well, about 15 minutes went by. And on the right-hand side of us, there was another whoop sound, and it sounded just like a little girl. And there was nobody out there in this area but us. And after that whoop came again, about probably less than 20 seconds later, there started coming the knocks on the trees again. That is the very first experience I ever had in that area. Well, after I left there, I started, you know, digging into it, started getting into it. And I thought, well, I'm going to try to find out what's going on there. And the more I got into it and the more I dealt into it, I started talking to people down in the area. I started looking online, trying to find as much stuff as I could. And that's when I actually found out that that section of North Carolina has had a lot of sightings since, like, the early 60s and 70s. And I think there's been, like, maybe between 85 and 90 sightings since the late 60s. And I never knew nothing about it because 
it's always the type of, it's kind of like the type of town where, you know, it's like a hush-hush deal. They don't want you to think that you're crazy or anything like that. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So after I got actually down in there and I met a few people, they started talking to me. And they started like, you know, saying, well, you need to be in this area or you need to be back over here or you need to be over here. And the areas that they actually pointed me into was three of the main areas that's down there that are really active. And that's where I've been doing my research ever since. And that's been since um, I started uh, middle of 2008 and I really started doing my research about January of 2009. Yeah, I know what you mean about, you know, not getting information from certain areas. Um, a few months back, I got an email from some folks in North Carolina. They weren't really sure how to approach the subject, and I, and I don't remember how they found out about me, but we got chatting back and forth, and, and uh, come to find out both people had had some form of experience. One gentleman, he was driving, and I want to say it was home from work. I Don't quote me on that, but it was either to or from work, and had one cross in front of the highway in front of him. It was right near a game trail. You know, the fence was down along the road and it had followed this game trail across the road. And, yep. um, and the lady uh, actually passed one as it was apparently had killed a deer alongside the road and was actually down. She thought it was a, uh, a buffalo at first. And then she thought, well, there aren't any buffalo here. So she drove by this thing, you know, down next to the, on the side of the road on the shoulder and actually found, you know, portions of a killed deer there the next day. So uh, there are yep. definitely things going on in your part of the country. So, um, <laughs> you know, and, and again, you know, people don't realize that, that there's stuff going on in a lot of places that nobody ever realized. Yeah, I know, because uh, I found out just a few weeks ago that actually where I live at, exactly three and a half miles from where I live, there was a sighting back in 2012 of a seven-foot-five bipedal creature walking across the road at 2 o'clock in the morning. And I was like, really? Three and a half miles from my house? <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's a little startling, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. And I went down there to the area, but the area is like, it's not like, um, it's, it's, it's all private property, but it's not like, you know, like a, a housing development. It's just a boatload of woods and forest, but it's all like private land. So um, I started looking into that, and then I met a guy about four weeks ago and he came up to me <laughs> and I've gotten kind of popular in my area with what I do. People know who I am now. <laughs> and uh, this guy came up to me and he said, he said, can I ask you something? And I said, sure. He said, people think I'm crazy. He said, but you, you're the Bigfoot guy. And I said, well, if that's what you want to call it, yeah, that's what I am. And uh, he said, I'm going to tell you something. He said, me and my girlfriend saw something about a month ago, and he said, I've talked to several people about it, and he said, people's told me who you were, and I needed to talk to you, and uh, he said, I've never really had a chance to talk to you, and he said, I was actually scared to come up to you, he said, because I didn't want you to think I was crazy, and I was like, well, you know, you can get on the crazy train right now, because I'm on it head first, and uh, he told me that they were coming, and this was coming out of Moore County, they were coming back, and right there, uh, as you're leaving the county, there's a uh, huge pottery sign, and I went down there and looked at it. And the sign is probably a good, I'm going to say it's a good eight foot long, and it's probably a good five and a half foot wide. And it's, mm, I'd say it's good eight feet in the air. Well, he said that about 1230 at night that him and his girlfriend were coming back, and he said all of a sudden, he said this thing steps out behind this sign, takes about two steps, and it clears the road. He said, well, 
when he saw it, he said all he could see was about mid-waist. He said it was a pair of long legs. He said it had shaggy-looking hair. It's like a dog. He said, but it was walking upright like a man. Well, he said not only did they see it, there was um, three cars right behind them. So as the thing went across the road, he said they went on by, and they spun around. He said because he wanted to come back and see, see if he could see anything. He said when they came back, that uh, when they got back to that one area, there, uh, the three cars that were behind them were pulled over, and they were all standing out there with flashlights because every one of them saw it. Wow. And then I started looking up, and in that area of Moore County and Randolph County, there has been sightings since the 40s and 50s, and I never knew that until I actually looked up that area. Had never you know, known that. A lot that. of places are like that. They don't, and people don't understand until, it's only been until in recent years, you know, with the media, and I would say, you know, when this whole subject really got national attention back in the late 50s, you know, in Northern California with Jerry Crew, you know, when the dozer operator that found tracks uh, in the Bluff Creek area when they first put roads in that area. Before that, you know, newspapers, there wasn't, you know, the Associated Press or any of these kinds of organizations that disseminated these stories around the country. It was, they were usually localized events. And, and these kind of stories weren't big news. It was just, you know... It was just a local thing. Somebody saw something, and, and that's the way it went. And those stories go back 200 years. There are a lot of things, a lot of areas where there are stories that uh, I'm sure a lot of people aren't, simply aren't aware of, but the stories do exist all over the place, and they go way, way back. Well, that's like down in my area. The um, there's I use three different areas, but actually just about everywhere down there, there's been a sighting. But there's, uh, there's three main areas that I use, and... The area that I'm in, there's a trail. It's a 54-mile trail that goes from one end to the other. But you've got trails that scatter out everywhere. And if uh, if you start at one end, actually, basically, it's like if you go from north north to west, south to east, whatever, it's 200 miles altogether. So there's a lot of walking room right there and a lot of distance. And they say, oh, you know, it's uh, you've got... 50 or 60 or close to 70,000 acres down here. That's not enough room for Bigfoot to hide. I got news for you. I can go out there and hide, and you will never find me. <laughs> right, and you know, and if people are saying that, they're not aware that usually a group size for a Sas- for the Sasquatch is usually between four and six individuals. So if mm-hmm. you've got just just one group occupying that much space, chances of seeing them are pretty slim. That's that's exactly right. Uh, what I've heard from people who've actually done stuff. I mean, there's people who've been down there doing areas. Down here where I'm at, probably good close to 30 years, and I've talked to several of them, and they said that they believe that there's like a there are a family of them, but there's probably no more than nine or 12 in the entire area, and I'm talking, you know, close to 200 miles. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I, the groups are never, never really any bigger than that. But now the biggest one that's been seen down here, from what I understand, I haven't seen him yet, is nine foot. That's the biggest one. And that's pretty. That's about the size of the one Wes and Woody encountered. No, yeah, the the one we saw actually it, it was uh, probably a little bit closer to ten, maybe eleven feet tall. But yeah, within that range. Now I've seen two down here, and the first one I saw was a female, and that was back on December the eighth of uh, twenty twelve, and uh, she was about mm, I'm gonna say between six four and six five, every bit of it. And the second one I saw was uh, last summer, twenty thirteen. And that was a large male, and he was almost eight foot. Yeah, that's pretty typical. Occasionally, though, you'll get a really big one. I exit up on the on the Washougal River, not far from where Wes and Woody live. 
um, the, the big male we saw, the big gray one, was had to be at least nine feet, and it was it was somewhere between a thousand and fifteen hundred pounds. It was massive. Good lord. <laughs> now the first two that I encountered back in 1974, the the male was about eight feet, and and I estimated around eight hundred pounds, and it had a smaller one with it that was about a head shorter and a couple hundred pounds lighter. And I I looking back, I I kind of had the impression it was a juvenile wasn't it wasn't fully grown yet yeah that big one in 1988 was really a massive one and hunters had seen that one around for 20 years prior to that time really so occasionally you will get a really big one yeah like i said uh, uh i know this one that's nine footer down here he's been seen um i'm thinking from what i've been told he's been seen at least six times i know you're talking about a gray one sam the guy that does this with me sometimes he actually, we had, well, I didn't see the great one, but he did. And that was back during, uh, we saw the mail back in the summertime. So I'd say probably mid-2013 is when we saw the great one. And Wes and Woody saw a great one in their encounter also. There were, or there was a the group of them, the same group that we investigated in the Ackle area back in 1989-90. Back then there was a great female with that group. So I'm pretty sure that was the same group. But you know, occasionally you will get a great one and... My thinking is that that may be the dominant individual of that group. Yeah, that's that's what I had thought too. That's what it kind of goes in line, you know, with the silverback gorillas. You're exactly right because the one that we saw back in uh, summertime, the the big one, it was almost eight foot. He reminded me of like an old looking gorilla. That's exactly what it looked like. It wasn't right. gray, but it just the way that the the way that he looked, it looked like an old gorilla. But it looked like his um, the right shoulder maybe had been broke because he was hunched over a little, but the right shoulder was like cocked up in the air. Like if you know you've seen if people like they break their shoulder, some of them walk over one, like one side's cocked up a little bit. Right. That's right. exactly what this thing looked like, except it was humped over a little bit. But the right shoulder was, I mean, it was like way up in the air, almost about middle to where the ear would be. It and was weird. Really will be. I mean, you know, living out like that, I'm sure things happen occasionally. Do you theorize that the gray hair is age, and so it's somewhat of the alpha of the group due to age? Is that what you're theorizing on the gray? I, I suspect it is, yes. Yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking, too. That's what I thought. Because in a lot of the areas, you know, and this is around the country, where you've got a group that's been identified, uh, oftentimes you'll hear about a gray one uh, or even a white one with that, or in that area, you know. And it's funny talking about the gray one because uh, down here in my area, uh, like I said, there's three areas that I use, and each area that gray one has been seen in. And if you go from one area to the other, you're looking probably within a 22-mile stretch, easy, and that it's been seen in all three areas. Well, that's pretty telling then, you know, if they're making the rounds in those different places. What information have you been able to come up with, Bobby, while you're out there researching them? kind of investigating what's going on. What um, Have you come to any, have you hypothesized anything with regard to their behaviors or, you know, the actions, different things, why they do what they do? Well, you know, it's like I have, but then sometimes I'll sit back and I think, well, is that right? Am I actually thinking this right? <laughs> because I've had so much activity in almost six years now that I've been doing this. And it's like now sometimes it's like, 
I got this thing set in my head where, like, you know, I've kind of figured this out. This is what they're doing. And it's just like the next time it's just totally different. I mean, it's like you got a new one that comes in a bunch, and he's just totally opposite of what the other ones have done. We had an incident uh, a few weeks ago where I had never heard this before. I mean, I've heard them do wood knocks. I've heard them do rock claps. I've heard them whistle, yell, scream. I've had them throw stuff at me, a little bit of everything. But that one night, there was two of them in the area that I was in because I was listening to the uh, the sound dish, a parabolic dish, and I could hear one moving, but you would hear one like it would walk. But then all of a sudden, you'd hear like another one, and it's like it was um, like not really running, but kind of running at a slow jog, and it was like going from tree to tree. And this was um, probably 12, 12.30 in the morning. But it was like it was weird because you'd hear the sound of like one walking, but you'd also hear the sound of like one shuffling speed like it was walk, um, kind of like a slow jog. Okay, well, that went on for several minutes. I, I think what they were doing, they were getting closer to me. But then they started doing something, like I said, that I have never heard in my life. It was um, if you took a rock, a good-sized rock, and you started tapping on a tree, kind of like Morse code, it was three hits, then it'd be one hit. And then about maybe less than a minute later, you'd hear two knocks and then one knock. And then that went on from like three hits to two hits to one hit to two hit back to three. That went on for like 20-some minutes. It's like they were just communicating with each other, like Morse code. Like I said, I've never heard them do that before. And that was in that one area that I used. Well, after that happened, the, the knocking noise, it just stopped. I mean, it was dead silent. And then I heard a loud thud, like somebody had dropped a 500-pound bowling ball out of a tree. And mm-hmm. after I heard that, you could hear something like the, uh, I call I call it like the belly crawl. That's what I call it. <laughs> it's like if somebody's crawling on their stomach, you could I could hear that like it was going off down through the valley, and the rest of the night, I didn't hear nothing else. I was going to say, what's interesting about some of those noises, and, you know, what's been put out up to this point by a lot of different groups with this knocking noises is they they seem to think they're communicating with the people out doing this stuff and our anthropologist friend and I were chatting about this and it's kind of similar to what chimps do when they're hunting they will make noises like that and it's sort of how they coordinate their attacks you know if these noises are really going on it has nothing to do with the people in the area unless they're hunting the people but it seems to be you know, some form of coordination, uh, and it's not unheard of with other primates. So it sounds very similar to what things we've been talking about. Well, something else that I've uh, I've come to theorize too, and I've had this happen probably six or seven times now, and this is kind of how I've come out the idea that when it's raining, to me, I've had more activity when it's raining, not like a like a a, a storm or nothing like that. But when it's raining, I don't know if it's because they don't think that there's nobody around, you know, because who would be out there, you know, stupid enough to be in the rain? <laughs> Me. But uh, on several occasions now, we've been out there when it was raining, and we'd be hit. And all of a sudden, I mean, just out of the blue, they would come, like, you'd hear them come walking through, or you'd start hearing them doing knocks, and it would last half the night because they didn't think we were out there. And that's what happened the night that me and Sam was out there. When we actually saw this big one, we were hit out. And it had been raining. It had been raining probably all day long. And we set up our, um, it's like a, uh, a camo tarp. And uh, we had completely hid ourselves around it. We covered it in the top. 
But we had went out there and cut branches, and we had branches and leaves. I mean, you, it looked just like a tree center is what it looked like when we got done. And we got inside that thing. And about, let's see, I'd say probably about 9.30 that night, it done got good and dark. I'm sitting there with, listening with the sound dish, and he's sitting there listening with his. And he reaches out and punches me on the arm. He's like, do you hear that? And I said, what are you hearing? He said, I'm hearing something walking. He said, it's coming towards us. Well, I started listening in the direction he was listening. And you could hear it. I mean, it sounded just like a big man was stomping his feet coming through the trees. Well, all of a sudden, the sound stopped. Okay? Well, from about quarter to ten to about almost 11 o'clock, we didn't hear nothing else. And then all of a sudden, you started hearing it again, like it started walking again. But this time, it was getting louder and louder and louder. And the only way that I can describe the way it sounded, it sounded like an elephant coming through the woods because it was breaking branches and limbs left and right when it was coming through there. And I'm not talking small twigs. I mean, it was breaking branches like it was nothing. Well, about that time, we heard something like right dead in front of us. And what we could hear was it sounded like you've heard people when they got asthma, they can't breathe. They're like, <sighs> like that. Right. That's what this thing sounded like. And I mean, we were like, so we were listening through the dish, and it sounded like it was right over your head, breathing on. That's what it sounded like. We heard it walk off. It walked completely right in front of us. At this time, we couldn't see it because we were listening. It walked right in front of the uh, the area we was in. It kept walking, went across, and went down in the valley on the right hand side of us. Well, I took my headset off, and he did too. And we sat there looking, at, looking, looking at each other, and we were kind of whispering back and forth. And I said. I can't believe that thing got that close to us because I'm talking the sound wasn't like the light, maybe 40 or 50 feet from us. Well, about that time, on the right-hand side of me, and like I said, you know, we're completely hid. You cannot see us. We got mud put on us to hide our smell. You could, you know, you didn't know we was there. Right. About on the right-hand side of us, within probably 20 minutes of that thing walking off, we heard these loud cracks. And, I mean, I'm talking like huge branches just snapping. Well, we didn't say nothing else. We just come to a dead stop. I reached over, picked up my night vision. He did too. And we had two little sections cut out in the tarp so we could just put the night vision right there and it would hold it. When you had to touch it, we could look right through it. Well, on the right-hand side of us, we started hearing that. And it was getting closer and closer. And basically, the way we figured it was it was right dead beside us. I mean, I'm talking like right shoulder to shoulder almost. We heard it as it walked in front of the tarp where it came by, it went to the front of us, it went around, and I was looking through the night vision, and at first I couldn't see it, and I was and I was looking everywhere. We could hear it, but we couldn't see it. 30, 35 seconds later, Sam didn't say nothing. He just reached over, and he punched me on the shoulder, and he was I could see what he was doing. He was motioning me to look through the night vision. Well, I leaned over, and I looked, and I looked at the night vision, and when I looked at it, right dead in front of me, about probably maybe 25 to 30 feet straight ahead of me was a, uh, you know, I call it like a creature, a creature between seven, five and eight foot tall. It was, had its right shoulder cocked up in the air. It was hunched over. It was bent at the knees, not like a, like a normal man stands, but it was bent at the knees. It had long shaggy hair, like a wet magic doll. It stood there for maybe 15, 20 seconds. And it was looking at the ground, and it was going around 
around and just kept going around like it was looking at something at the ground. I don't know what it was looking at, but it's like it was looking, and it would reach down, and it was just like scraping at the ground. Like, I don't know if it was trying to dig something up or what, but it just kept scraping at the ground. It done that for maybe, I don't know, it seemed like it done it for 20 or 30 minutes, but it didn't last that long. It, I'd say maybe two minutes at the most. It sat there like digging at the ground. Well, after it done that, it stood up, and it just stood there looking around. And like I said, it couldn't see us, and it couldn't smell us. It stood there, and it was looking around, and all you could hear was that. That's all you could hear. And then all of a sudden, it took off, and it just went down through the valley. And that's the last we saw of it that night. But later on that night, about three hours after we saw that, we started hearing uh, knocks on the trees. Not like the Morse code, but just like somebody tapping the trees with a rock just over and over again. And that's what happened that night. You know, it's interesting about the, the digging at the ground. It made me think of my own first encounter. When I when I pushed my way through the tree limbs into the clearing under this big maple tree and, and the Sasquatch was standing there, you know, less than 15 feet in front of me, uh, it was just standing there moving the leaves around with its right foot. And it was, it, I, I had the same kind of thing. I don't know what it was doing, you know, when we went back at first light the next morning to track these two that, we, that I encountered. Um, I couldn't tell, you know, we saw the leaves move, but I couldn't tell what it was doing. So that's interesting. That's that's the only other time I've heard, uh, you know, someone watch one do something on the ground like that. But, um, yeah, you know, with the rain, uh, it, it made me think, too, back when I was in the Army, I was a, uh, a cavalry scout, and my job was reconnaissance, was to go out and find an enemy and then to gather intelligence and, you know, move in and pull back out without ever being noticed. And the rain, things like the rain, are what they call noise camouflage. You know, so you can be, you know, when rain's coming out, out and about, number one, it kind of cleanses the air so your scent isn't out floating around as easily as it would be, you know, without rain. And yeah. the noise can, the sound of the rain can actually hide whatever minute noises you might be making. Well, that, that's that's the truth there because when um, when it was raining out there, I mean, with us listening through the dish, basically all you could hear was, you know, the sound of the rain dropping off the trees, hitting the ground. That's basically all you could hear. So when that thing started walking and stomping its feet and breaking in branches, oh, that was clear as a bell. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was no doubt that thing was... Kind of noise, that's for sure. Yeah, that's, that's the darn shit. But I mean, I've, I've had several people ask me when I talk about that, you know, the only way I can describe, like I said, the way it sounded, it sounded like an elephant coming through there. I mean, I kid you not. At first, I always used to say it sounded like King Kong coming through there, but then, you know, I say it sounded like an elephant. But I mean, it, it didn't really care if anybody was out there it was coming through there, and it had a purpose, something like that. <laughs> yeah, Bobby, what's what's probably the most aggressive encounter you've had, or have you had one yet? Probably the most. Well, I wouldn't say it's like really like aggressive. Aggressive was we've had one. Let's see, this was uh, this is 2014. This was back in between 2012 and 2013, somewhere in that time frame. We was getting uh, aggressive like grunts coming towards us like a, a threatening grunt come towards up like that. We were um, in that one area that we use, and um, the guy that helps me, Ken, he, uh, he, he does, like, the call blast and stuff, and he had a, a sound of, of uh, like, um, uh, chimps, like gorillas, when they let out their, 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 they start screaming. And he told me, he said, let's try this this night. And I said, okay. I said, we can do that. So we tried that. He was actually uh, doing the parabolic ditch, and I was actually doing the call blasting for him. Well, the area that we were aimed at, 
The first time we done it, you know, it wasn't nothing going on. But the second time we done the call blast, he looked at me and he started waving his hand around and he started pointing that way. So I reached over and grabbed my bitch and I started listening. And I didn't hear anything at first. Well, he pulled his headset off and he looked at me and he said, play that thing again. He said, because I just had something just give me a really pissed off grunt. I said, okay. So he put his headset back on and I played it. And about probably between 9 to 11 seconds after I'd done that call blast, I mean, I don't know if I can do it, but this is kind of what it sounded like. It was like, like that. That's exactly what we heard. We played that call blast four more times. And every time we played that call blast, we would get that aggressive grunt back towards us. Well, the last time that I played it, we got that aggressive grunt, but then we had a rock about the size of a baseball come flying out of the tree at us. I mean, what were you thinking? Was it time to leave at that point? Oh, no, 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 no. It, no it, it, unless it actually comes up and drags me out of the woods, I'm not leaving. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I mean, it takes a lot to scare me. And But I'll be honest with you, the, uh, the night that we actually had that one like 30 feet from us, now, it wasn't like a scared rush, but it was like a drill. I mean, I, I thought my chest was going to beat out of my heart. I'm seriously, I mean, it was just... It was it was pounded. I thought my ribs were going to break. It pounded so hard, but because it was just like being that close to it and seeing how big it was, it was just unreal. Yeah. But no, I've I've never had that. Other than that, I've never really been scared of it. And like I said, I've had stuff thrown at me. I mean, you know, we've we've been had grunts, and I mean, I've had them. You know, the sound of them walking almost right on top of us, like right behind us or coming near. Now I've never felt threatened at all. Do you mainly go out at night, or do you go out during the day? Uh, we do both. What we'll do mm-hmm. is, um, it's like if I go out with Ken and his son, or or I go out with Sam or whoever I go out with, we'll go out during the day. And what we'll do, we'll scout out the area that we're in. And the main thing we're doing, we're looking for tracks. Because if you can find a track, you know he's either gone one way or he's gone the other. And you start looking for the branches that would, because they're, they're bad about, uh, they'll twist them and pop them down. And it's like a lead mark. You know, You know, if they're going that way, they're coming back. So we start looking for tracks. And once we get the area that we want to be in, we'll sit out there and we'll do hollers or calls or we'll not swear, and then we'll let it die down. And then we start hiding ourselves. It's like it's, it's kind of like going into a kindergarten and getting a kid's attention and then wanting to play hide-and-seek with him. That's about what it's like. Once you get his attention, you go hide, and he's coming to look for you one way or the other. <laughs> Yeah, are you worried at all when you're out there with, you know? I'm sorry, what? Uh, are you worried at all when you're out there doing this? Nope, not a bit. I've, like I said, I've never felt threatened by them. So it doesn't, I don't, I'll be honest with you, I, I, I feel the rednecks in the woods more than I do Bigfoot. <laughs> yeah, but, well, I like no. there. <laughs> but no, no, I mean, I'm, I've never had a, like a problem with like I, ever had a feeling like I had to get out of the woods. No, I've, I've never had that problem at all. I never have. Well, not in my area anyway. So, And I have heard a report of the there is an aggressive one in my area, but I've never actually come across it. And I've always been told that if you ever get in his area, that he'll damn he'll damn sure make sure you leave. But yeah. I, like I said, I've never, I've never encountered him yet. Doing this research, or is there kind of an end game to what you would like to accomplish? Or is it more, let's just learn as much as you can? Well, when I first started, it was to, like, 
you know, learn as much as I could because I've always been into this. And then when I actually found an area that I could do this, it was like a kid in a candy store. I just wanted more, and I want more. And now I really want more because, I mean, in this last six years, you know, I've, I've found tracks. I've found hair. I've found bone. Uh, we found a cavern or, uh, you know, pretty much like a den where we think this thing may be actually staying because we found uh, deer bones in it. We found tracks around it. Um, I've gotten audio of this thing screaming. I've gotten pics, and it's just like, now that I've got my feet wet, I'm out to really prove it to the world that this thing is actually real. And how, and how do you think you're going to go about proving to the world that it's real, just just out of curiosity? Well, um, you know, everybody says, you know, you got to have that, uh, you got to have that million dollar video, or you got to have what it's going to take. And you know, I'm not pro kill, so you know, don't get me wrong, I'm not. Because if I was, that might mean Sam's thought, and I, I would have his head hanging on my wall right now. That would have been, it would have been over with. I'm trying my best with me and Sam or whoever I can get to help me do this. I'm trying my best to get that, I guess you want to say that DNA that people are looking for. You know, I want to get that bone. I want to get that hair that's not a bear. It's not a fox. And you know, I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, oh, I, I shot one or I choked one to death or whatever, you know, like others do. I want that proof. I don't want nobody to be able to come back and say, oh, it was a bear, you know, or that's horse shit, or, you know, it's this, that, and the other. I want that proof. That's what I'm after. But you stop at the line of shooting one then? Yeah, like I said, I'm not pro-kill. The only way that I would actually put one down is if he charged me or threatened to hurt me. Now, if that happened, yeah, I'd, I'd put him on the ground. But other than that, no, I don't feel no threat for him. I don't feel no threat from him, and I don't think they feel any threat from me. Well, let me ask you this, and I'm sure Bear's going to tear me apart on my next comment. But uh, <laughs> And he's a big guy, so I'll try and word it a certain way. Uh, <laughs> That's <a good> um, <laughs> Yeah, you know, when people talk about proving them, yeah, I just don't see how you can go and prove them without having some sort of piece of them. I don't think yeah. the DNA thing's going to work. The DNA thing, especially after this whole fiasco with Melba Ketchum, I, I have a hard time having anyone buy into that. I have a hard time. Even you could have the best HD video, and people are going to call it a hoax. You know how the Bigfoot community is. I mean, oh yeah, man, they'll rip you a new one in a heartbeat. You know, they'll rip you apart. So I'm wondering that. You know, with and I've given it a lot of thought too. And I was going to talk with Bear about this tonight, but. You know, honestly, I feel like if you are wanting to prove it, you're going to have a have to have a piece of of, of one of these things. To well, prove it. that's that's something I didn't really want to. You know, I, mean, I didn't really want to say too much about what we're trying to do. Like I said, I'm not pro kill. Okay, I'll put it like this: I'm not pro kill to where I'll put his head on my wall. But right, right, I will say this: I will do what it takes to bring that proof back. You, you see what I'm saying? I'll do I'll do what it takes to get that proof. I'm not killing one, but I'll do what it takes to bring it back. That I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> okay. Well, be safe doing it, man. Some of the stories we've heard, it, it it could be just short of a battle trying to bring one back, dead or alive. So. Oh yeah, yeah, safe. yeah. Because they go in groups. Yeah. So be safe while you're out there. You know. Um, yeah, absolutely. 
you know, and a lot of people think that, you know, once you bring one in, everyone's going to be out there blasting away at them. I don't, I don't yeah. believe that. I really no, don't. That would, that wouldn't happen. And, and, I, don't, and I, don't, I don't see it happening either. I see more people shooting them now based on misidentification than if they were proven real. I think most people would realize not to shoot them. Everyone here at Bigfoot Hotspot Radio would like to thank Audible.com. Audible.com is the internet-leading provider of audiobooks with over 150,000 different titles to choose from. To download a free audiobook of your choice, go to audibletrial.com forward slash Bigfoot Hotspot. Jim Grant, a.k.a. Bear, how are you this evening, sir? Oh, mean as a rattlesnake with a toothache. What about you guys? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good um, way to describe it. <laughs> yeah, about the same. Thanks for coming on. We sure appreciate it, Bear. Uh, no problem, man. I, I've heard a lot about you guys. Uh, since I quit doing Bigfoot Outlaw Radio, I've kind of just stayed away from the radio shows and uh <clears throat> I've heard a lot of good things about you guys, so uh, I, I investigate the investigators before I decide whether they're worth uh, the time to come on here and fill your head full of lies and hoaxes and all the other good things. Yeah. You know, I think that's a pretty smart approach. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's what you need to do. I mean, everybody out there needs to really research the researchers before they start doing anything else. I mean, look at your... Oh, Rick Dyer's of the world, then look at the idiots on TV and uh, patting themselves on the back, breaking their arms, patting themselves on the back about what they've invented, what they started, blah, blah, so forth and so on. Nine times out of ten, they stole it from some good old boy that was sitting over there doing it all right. And uh, what the old saying in the South is, even a blind hog can find an acre every now and again. Yeah, and that's so true. I, I, I've had so many things stolen over the years. You know, 20 years ago, I never thought about, you know, you talk to people and you're on about, you don't think what you tell somebody, just some other guy you meet, you know, whether you're investigating or, or just sitting around, you know, BSing over a beer, uh, will take your ideas and, and pass them off to somebody else. But I've seen so many things over the past 20 years or so that were, oh, my, a buddy of mine, our ideas that we came up with. Uh, and I'll give you an example. I think it was around that time, a small booklet, and it was billed as a um, a field guide to the Sasquatch. And it was right. a, little, a little pamphlet-like thing, and it had the Patterson picture on the front. That was my idea. <laughs> and somebody else took it and ran with it. So that <laughs> happens all the time. And, uh, you know, Rene DeHinden used to tell me all the time, you know, he talking with that guy, you would learn more about investigators and people who said they were involved in this because that's what he did. And he was like the CIA. You could run a name across him, and within 24 hours, you'd know his grandmother's name and everything. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You've got to do that because uh, uh, everybody out there is out to stick a knife in your back. When, when you trust human nature... And then you see how many people out there take advantage of people for uh, volunteering or offering things they've learned through uh, their own hard work or by accident, which a lot of people really don't understand this. 
uh, we wouldn't know what we know about this uh, preacher, human, or whatever people choose to call it if it hadn't been for the fact that it chose to present itself in one shape, way, form, or fashion. If it was all accidental viewings all the time, we we wouldn't even be talking about or knowing what we currently know up to this point in time. Uh, most of it's just things after the fact. People don't realize that these uh, creatures have got to trust you before you can trust them. I mean, it's a trust situation. And then watching how people do each other in regard to stealing their research or uh, their claim or whatever, it, it kind of makes sense why a booger decides, well, hell, I ain't going to show myself to these idiots. Why would I? I mean, you know, they're just going to go out there and uh, destroy whatever they fool with. Hey, Bear, will you go back and you had two encounters when you were a kid, correct? It's hard for me to be brief, but I'll try to be as brief as I can. Uh, that takes, takes 19- as much time as you want. All right, 1966. Uh, I know it was that year because my baby sister had just been brought home from the hospital. I was six years old. I was born in 1960. I'm an old fart, 54 years old. 1966, it was in uh, August or September. I know that because my sister was born in July. And my sister hadn't, had not been home as a infant six weeks, and my father left my mother. Well, she left two little boys, an infant girl and a mom, in a house out in the middle of central Mississippi in the boonies, in the woods, whatever you want to call it. My baby sister was a newborn. She was crying at night, you know, uh, colicky, jaundice, the whole nine yards. Uh, for some reason, we had went to bed. We we didn't uh, have air conditioning back in those days. What we would do would stick a window fan unit into the window on the north end of the house, facing outwards, and then we would open up all our windows inside the house to draw any prevailing air through the house. Well, when you do that, of course, you know, you got to open up curtains and so forth and so on. But, uh, and it's, it's hard for people to understand. I was six years old. I was able to determine the date because of the fact that I knew how long it had been since my father had left, uh, how old my sister was at the given time. So I've roughly got it narrowed down to happening in probably August or September of that year due to the absence of my father. For some reason, I woke up during the middle of the night. Our bedroom faced back toward the east. When uh, my grandfather and my father originally built the house, when my mother and father married in 1959, they had to level off the property. And when they did, they pushed the mound of dirt that was unleveled toward the back of the house. On top of this was a slope that was going up onto my grandfather's place. That's how uh, we was able to build the house. We built it on uh, one small acre off of my grandfather's property. Well, at the top of that mound of dirt, my grandfather, he raised cattle and we had horses. And so he would always, you know, fence in the whole property. And uh, he just moved the fence line back behind the house on top of this slope that they created going into this hillside. And behind there was a bunch of uh, pine trees and oak trees, hardwood. 
something woke me up. I do not know what time. I, I can't even conjecture. I do know that me and my brother slept in the same bed at the time. I was six. He was right at four. I heard something outside the bedroom window. The fence line, due to the elevation created from pushing the foundation up against the hill, caused the fence line to be on a level with our back window. It was probably, I don't deal in feet, I deal in yards because I played football and I judge yardage better than I do footage. Uh, it was right at probably 15 to 20 yards from the bedroom window to where this fence was. It was what we call a four-strand barbed wire fence. In other words, uh, it, it, I, I can't remember if it was a four or five because we did vary that, but I, as young as I was, I do know that it, the height of the fence was right at chest level to an average man, so I figure it was about five foot high. Something woke me up, and it was a noise. It was going, ooh, 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 and then you hear, then it would go back to cooing, what I called it at the time, and then it start clicking again. The noise woke me up, so I raised up out of the bed. Our bed was up against the uh, west wall, looking directly east, straight out this bedroom window. The curtains were drawn back to uh, take advantage of all the ambient air being pushed through the house. Evidently, it was either a full moon that night or it was a almost quarterly full moon because you could see in the backyard, uh, of course, being asleep, no light source around you, your eyes were adapted to looking outside. Well, when I looked outside to where this noise was coming from, I noticed, and I'm going to tell you my general impression, this giant monkey was leaning over this five-and-a-half-foot fence with both arms draped over the top strand of the barbed wire. And the arms were, it was stooped down. It was kind of like in a crotch position. It was slowly swaying its head back and forth to the right and to its left while it was making this cooing, clicking sound at the same time. Well, it just blowed this six-year-old boy's head wide open, you know. My first reaction was I woke my four five-year-old brother up, look, 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 look out the window, look at that monkey out there, look at the monkey. Of course, my brother, you'd have to know him, and when I get into the second tale, it'll come, become more obvious. Whenever anything excitable or something like that would come up, his first reaction is to haul ass wide open. When he saw this thing cooing and clicking at us, and he didn't understand what it was, he tore out of that bed like his butt was on fire heading for Mama's bedroom. Panic is infectious. I tore my butt smooth out of that bed, jumped straight in the bed with Mama. We woke her up. When we woke her up, of course, we woke up my baby sister in the bassinet next to the bed. Mama, 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 there's this big monkey outside her bedroom window. Mama, Mama, come see, come see, you know, and cause we done dove on top of her the whole nine yards. And this is what I remember about it. She looked at both of us and calmly said, 
Now, now you know good and well we don't have monkeys in this part of the United States or in this country, you know. Uh, so you guys just lay down here and go on back to sleep. I do remember that my mom did not get up out of that bed to go and see what run us out of our bedroom. I do remember that much. <laughs> that was the first time that I had any inkling that there was something out there. Didn't your grandfather kind of take you to take you aside and say, "Hey, son, you know what? What you actually saw was..." Yeah, that's what happened after the second incident happened. We ended up losing that house, but that house is still standing to this very minute on the perimeter of my property. It actually was the only acre of land from my grandfather's place that we do not own. I still own the property to this day. It was all passed down to me. That's the only acre of my grandfather's land that we do not physically own anymore. But <clears throat> due to the divorce and a single mother trying to raise us kids, uh, she was working all the time, and uh, we had to sell the property. We we moved into my grandfather's house, which was uh, less than a good quarter mile on down the road a little farther from where this location is, where this first sighting occurred. Me, my brother, and sister, by this time, and I remember these, uh, I can get close to the date. It was in 1969 uh, or 70, and the only reason I know that, you know, when you're 8, 9, 10, well, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, who cares about a date? You know, I mean, it's just another day in your life. But uh, I do know... This was before my mother remarried, and we had to relocate to a major city in Mississippi. Me and my brother and my sister were out chasing and catching what we call in the South lightning bugs. Everybody else calls them fireflies. We was out in the back pasture. So when fireflies or lightning bugs in the South start um, doing their thing, it's usually in the early spring. We was out there kicking these fireflies, putting them into clear mason jars in the back pasture. We was having so much fun screaming and hollering and running around that pasture, you know, just having a blast as children play. Not having a care in the world, all we were doing was functioning on catching fireflies. When my grandfather come out the third time to yell for us to come on into the house, he could see a panoramic view of the whole pasture, whereas we was all centered on just catching the next lightning bug. Saw something moving next to a fence line that was uh, straight to his left of where we were. Instead of yelling for us to come on in again, once he saw this, this whatever it was, it just started moving. He said it started loping towards us on all fours. Uh, it was not an average like a dog or a cat or a deer or a cow or a horse lope. It was more like a chimpanzee does in its locomotion toward us. Of course, we didn't see none of this because we was concentrating on catching uh, lightning bugs. He did not have time to go grab a gun, shotgun, rifle, or nothing. He just bailed out the back door running across the pasture, yelling as loudly as he could. Our grandfather, he 
most gentle man in the world. He he raised me and my brother and my sister. He he's never he he never really punished us or really yelled at us or cussed or anything around us when we were younger. He was just acting like a wild man in my personal assessment. For him to take that kind of a reaction out of just, in our opinion, going from calm to berserk, it really blew our mind. So we, I, I can envision to this day us all, me, my brother and sister, immediately turning around and looking straight at him because what was making my grandfather go nuts? All the time my grandfather was running towards us, just screaming and yelling. Anything he could do to, he, what he, we, he was trying to do was to divert this thing's attention from us towards him. We still did not know this thing was coming toward us. We looked at our grandfather acting insane, our interpretation of it. And we noticed all the time he was running towards us, he was flinging his arms up in the air like he was doing jumping jacks the whole nine yards. But he kept looking towards our right, which was his left. Well, about that time, we said, well, hey, Papa's acting this way for a reason, but what the reason is he's looking back over here. So we all turn around and look back towards our right, and here this thing is coming, loping at us on all four legs. This thing, it was hairy. It looked like it had the mange, it, the knee area, the knee pad area, the elbows, the midriff, the whole nine yards. It was like they were clumps of hair. And, you know, a lot of people say fur, but it's not fur. It's hair. It had just fell off. I mean, it actually looked like a dog that had laid in a fiberglass, if the listeners know what I'm talking about. But I didn't realize at the time because, you know, I'm looking at something that I only seen when I was six years old that was uh, leaning on a fence. But this one was a different one. This one was not as big as the one that was leaning on the fence uh, four years earlier. This one seemed, in my opinion, our estimate that he was younger. And all the time, once we visually saw what was coming towards us, here goes my brother again. He didn't waste one uh, action of motion. He immediately dropped his uh, mason jar full of lightning bugs and almost knocked my grandfather down, heading straight to the house. Well, when this happened, and my sister saw it, of course, she wasn't but about five or six years old at that, her legs just melted out from underneath her. She hit the ground screaming as loud as she could. I was torn being the oldest brother because when I seen my brother take off running and I saw the reaction my grandfather was doing, I wanted to run so bad. I mean, it's the feeling that nobody knows them because they've actually been in that position. But there was my sister melted, laying smooth on the ground, screaming and crying her eyeballs out, and I just stood my ground. I, I didn't want to desert my sister. By then, my grandfather still running across the field. I mean, I'm telling this story a hell of a lot longer than all this occurred. I, I can imagine it probably 
all of this whole episodic deal from the moment my grandfather seen it until the, this point in time was probably within one minute's time, you know. I looked at my grandfather, and I looked back at this thing, and there was no way in hell my grandfather would have got there before this thing did. It was so intent upon me and my sister standing there in front of it that it never noticed my grandfather coming across that field raising hell. Being that young, I did not know. And here we come back to all these tales everybody tells. Don't never look one directly into the eye. It'll cha- you know, they don't see that as a challenge. They see that as a challenge. Oh, crap. That's all I was looking at was the damn eyes. But I got the impression way after the fact. A lot of people, you know, you're dealing with a 10-year-old kid here. I've thought about this a million times over the years. Reflecting back on it later, the intent I got from it staring at me and my sister was it wanted to play with us. And I thought of that a million times. And the reason I say that is because of what happened next. It come up within about 10 yards of me and my sister. And then out of the corner of its eye, my grandfather come into the picture because he was by then getting close to us. But he still would not have made it to us if this thing wanted to grab us with full intent to harm us or whatever. But it caught my grandfather coming across that yard, that pasture, and it stopped. And when it stopped, It was looking dead at my grandfather, and then it slowly rose up and stood as erect as it can. I was listening to your last guy. I called him. uh, I don't even know who he was, but, you know, it was really interesting what I called. He's absolutely correct. This thing cannot lock its knees. It stood as straight as it could, which left its knees in a sort of like a, like, You're bending down to jump, but you don't jump. Yeah, he saw my grandfather. That's when he stood as erect as he could. It never took its eyes off my grandfather. My grandfather made it to where me and my sister was. Of course, my sister was on ground. My grandfather picked her up. This thing looked at us, and the expression on its face was, I messed up, I screwed up. You could see sadness in its eyes. And I'm not trying to portray emotions here because, you know, a lot of people overdo the emotion thing with animals anyway. It it wasn't that playful, intent look it had when it originally come loping across that field toward us. It looked at us, turned slowly to its left, never taking its eyes off of us, and walked bipedally into the woods north of where we was. It never took its eyes off us the whole time. Of course, you know, that got to be a fun moment when everybody got into the house. And we was all sitting there talking, you know, and I said, we called my grandfather Papa. And while we was talking, you know, I said, that I think, I, I, I can't recall, but I may have even brought up the fact that You know, it looked similar to the one that was leaning across the fence looking in our bedroom window when I was six years old, but Mama said there's no such thing. He said, 
So, hon, I want to tell you something right here and right now. That's what we call a booger around here. And I said, okay. And it made sense because here we was where kids raised in the country. We would be threatened with the booger man. A lot mm-hmm. of people up north and everything, they call them boogie man. But, you know, we keep things simple down in the south, so we just call them booger man. And it always made sense to me when my grandmother or my granddaddy or somebody say, well, you don't need to hang out after dark because the booger man gets you. We was introduced to the booger man right then. That's when my grandfather freely admitted that he knew these things were there. Before we get cut down on too much time, I was hoping that you could tell the time that you were bluff charged. And then I wanted to touch a little bit on habituation and your feelings on habituation. But if if you don't mind telling the story about when you were bluff charged. It was 1981 or two. I had uh, parted my way smooth out of college, went foolish, and went home, found a woman, thought I was in love, got married. But I went deer hunting in another location entirely different from our family property. This is the first time, uh, you know, I, I knew that these things were more numerous than people acclaimed to them to be in, even up until this very moment. I went hunting in another section of the country in uh, central Mississippi, way uh, about 60 miles or further from uh, my home property. I knew I was hunting what we call a uh, swamp that was bordering a soybean field. Deer, white-tailed deer love soybeans and uh, corn and so forth, but this year they planted soybeans there. I had been watching this deer all season long, I had the rights to hunt there, and I was trying to figure out its movements, its actions, and so I can, you know, build a stand or set up a stand to probably harvest this deer. When it would come into the bean field, it always come in from right off the edge of that swamp. And then when it would go back, you know, leaving out of the bean field, that it always would head the same direction back into the swamp. I just went into that swamp one day, looking for the ideal tree stand to our ground blind to put up so I could have a chance at harvesting this deer. And I noticed this, uh, I call it a cane thicket, or and it was interlaced with honeysuckle vines. It was very thick, and it was right on the edge of this creek that was running right through the swamp. And when I got to looking at it from a distance, I I saw a blackjack oak tree that was growing in the middle of this cane thicket. And I said, you know, I bet if I could get in that oak tree right there, I could ambush that deer. So when I walked up to the cane thicket, I got to walking around the perimeter of it. And I noticed that something was going into that cane thicket. I mean, there was a game trail going through it, and it stood about three foot tall. I mean, and three foot comes up to about my waist. I said, well, you know, maybe that deer is even bedding in this cane thicket. It's not impossible. I said, but, you know, that's neither the point. I wanted to get to that blackjack oak tree so I could crawl, build a stand up in the forks of it and have a chance at harvesting the steer. When I saw the game trail, I said, well, heck, I, you know, I don't have to grab a machete or thrash my way through this junk. I'll just uh, use this game trail and go on in there. 
Well, I stooped over to try to get through it, and basically I was mostly on my hands and knees, just about at a crawl to get through it. The first thing that struck me odd about it was when I went into this cane thicket, it was so thick that you could probably take four or five steps inside of it and then turn around and you couldn't see the opening unless you got down on your hands and knees and looked back. But the first thing that I found strange about it was when this opening into this game trail, it turned back to like a V formation to my left. And I kind of thought about it a minute or two there. I said, wait, you know, deer or game always takes a straight line into anything. And I thought it was odd, but then, I, you know, just go with the flow. So here I go. I go into the inverted V. Well, I don't proceed into that probably uh, three, four yards, and it makes another inverted turn back to the right. All right? Think of a backwards letter N, and that's what the trail was into the same thing. Now, I'm sure enough scratching my head. I said, wait a minute, you know, this is really something strange. And I, I, I really didn't think of that much more, but then I looked ahead into the straight path then, and I could just vaguely see the trunk of the oak tree. Well, I said, well, I'm going to go on. I'm, I'm almost through this thing anyway. I'll just go and complete it. And so I just, and I'm still on my knees at this point in time. I had my rifle in my hand. My rifle was loaded. I was panning from the oak tree back to the left, and right over there in the uh, southwest corner of this thrashed up opening, there was a dang booger, and it was asleep. It was laying on its stomach with its arms curled up underneath its chest cavity. Its buttocks are its butt was sticking up in the air with its knees in a curled up position underneath itself. And its head was facing back towards where I was. Man, I like to craft a gold brick because I already knew about these boogers, but I wasn't even thinking of boogers that day. I was thinking and concentrating on white-tailed deer. Plus, I was not in my home territory where I knew, as far as I knew at the time, these things were. And this was an entirely different place for me, so it was a total shock to me. And I looked at this thing, and uh, I guarantee you I wasn't uh, 15, 20 yards from it, because it was at the very edge of this corner. Well, I said, well, shoot, I need to get the hell out of here. About that time when I start to ease out, it opened its eyes, and it looked square directly at me. When it did, it jumped straight up with its knees up under and just like a spring does. And, I mean, it was continuously a super fast motion, and it crouched over as erect as it could. Its knees was bent also. And this thing just started huffing at me. Uh, caught the tail end of your last guy, and this thing was, oh, oh, 
I call it coffin. That's the term I've used. You know, I, I being that I'm an ignorant old country boy, anything way, you know, you come up with your own phrases. This thing was coughing at me, and what it started doing, it started at a side pace to its left, my right, and it was coughing at me, but it never would take its eyes off me. And it was like it was slow at first. Then when it reached the apex of that corner, it went and started back to where it was laying down, only its motions was getting more rapid. The coughing was getting louder, it was shorter, and it was more erratic. And this thing, and it was throwing its arm, it started then thrashing the cane behind it. And my impression is it was working its courage up or getting more agitated by the second. So by this time, I said, well, I'll be damned if I'm going to be on my knees. So I stood up. I stood up. I had my rifle pointed square at it. All I had to do was hit the safety on and start pulling the trigger. And I done made up my mind if this thing come toward me, that's what I was going to do. I had no other option. I had cornered it. And actually, it had me cornered. It went back to where it was laying down. Then it went back towards this other side. When it got into half stride, it come barreling at me, screaming bloody murder. I was shaking so hard. I was wearing boots. I could feel my ankles vibrating off the top of my boots. That's how scared I was. And I, I was shaking all over, and, I mean, this happened in a millisecond. I mean, it was so fast, it, it just, you don't have enough time to think, you don't whatever. But there I was again, looking at them damn eyes, and you know what? This thing was as scared of me as I was of him. I could see the fear in its eyes. I mean, I've done already told you three emotions that I've seen out of two different boogers. This thing come barreling at me. It had its arms pressed out as if it was going to grab me. And when it got within probably four or five yards of me, it veered off to my right, its left, and it tore through that darn cane thicket like it was nothing but straw. Here I was trying to get out of this stuff now because I didn't have to shoot it. Uh, I... I think a million times, if I would have pulled the trigger the first time, what would have happened? Would I have killed it? Hell, I don't know. This one was about seven foot tall. This one was, the color on this one was kind of rust color, more like a maroon rust color. The thicket that I tried to back out of, holding a gun, shaking, scared to death, I walked out of it. And I ripped my, I still got scars on my elbows and my back of my arms where I backed through those honeysuckle vines and briars and all in that cane thicket that this thing just tore through like it was nothing. And this thing paced me all the way out of the woods, screaming and yelling at me until I got to the truck. I was parked on the shoulder of the road next to uh, the major road out of there. I was still shaking so hard, I would not take my rifle down or nothing. You know, I kept it pointed at him the whole time. 
and I couldn't even get my hand in my pocket. I was shaking so hard to get my keys to unlock my truck. Well, I finally got my truck unlocked. I got in the truck. I didn't bring none of my, I didn't even unload my gun. Uh, put it in gear, hauled ass home. I said, I'm never going back in the damn woods again. And then I got mad. I said, I'll be damned if I'm going to let something like this keep me from doing what I love to do the best, and that's hunting. You know, I want to make one comment, actually a couple comments. You know, the way you described how it was sleeping is exactly, yep. if you go back in John Green's books, and they, they have a, I can't remember which one it is now, but he had a drawing, and this was from Russia, you know, the Russian Almas, their version of it. Right. Exactly that same way. Exactly. Well, I didn't realize at the time that, uh, like I said, what really blew my mind about all this was I was not thinking booger. I was thinking white-tailed deer. And and what sure. makes it doubly worse is I already knew that these things were running around Mississippi, you know, especially my part where I lived and I was raised at. But... That's when it, you know, that old light bulb went off in the top of my head and said, hell, these things could be anywhere and everywhere. And that's where I've taken my research ever since I've been doing this. Well, you know. I, I know uh, what you mean about, you know, seeing kind of the emotion in their face. When I encountered the two I did when I was 16, they were angry. And it was yeah. clear that they were angry. Yeah. And uh, I pretty much and knew I got the hell out of there. <laughs> <laughs> that can change at the snap of a finger, too. Yeah, uh, that's right. Hey, Bear, would you tell the story about the goats, the habituation site, and the goats that you and I were talking about? I sure will. Uh, I, think it's important. Pretty... I think it's important oh, for people to hear, hear the story. These people who call themselves habituators, they're not habituators. They're manipulators. And I'll tell you why. If you go and you start feeding somebody one of these things something, you're taking away its dependence on its own abilities. After a while, this thing is smart enough to recognize the fact, hey, I ain't got to go out and forage for this anymore. I can just walk up to this house and get a hand out. You know what I mean? When you get your hand out, you better be in this damn thing for the long haul. And I'm talking about the long haul. I'm not just talking about oh, this is cute and fun right now, and then you get bored with it and forget about it. You better hope like hell that you're not renting the place where you're living because once you leave that location, somebody else is going to rent that same damn house. You better hope like hell that you don't turn around and have a terminal illness like a heart attack, stroke, cancer, or something like that, and it does you in, and then whoever moves into that location, you left a problem for them. Now I'm going to get into the story. A good friend of mine out of Missouri, he had uh, heard about me on the Internet, and uh, we had got together. He had come down to Mississippi, and uh, I showed him, told him a few things, you know. I said, but don't never feed them. I said, because that is the biggest disrespect you can give nature in the world is to take away their dependency on their own ability to forage. Because all you're going to do is make a beggar out of them, and it's not going to be pretty as the end result. Anyhow, I said, but you can cheat. You know, I taught him a little bit about that. You can sit there. You can uh, cut open a watermelon. You can sit there. You can open up a can of peanut butter. 
You can do anything. Oh yeah, you you can you can get next to them if you want to. It's gonna take them a little while, but once they realize that you're sitting there giving out the freebies, they're gonna take advantage of it. But then when the freebies stop, you talk about a pissed off animal. I told the buddy, don't never start feeding them unless you. If you resume, if you assume this responsibility, you better stay with it because if you don't, when they get pissed off, you're going to pay for it. He was in the Army Reserve. He got sent to Desert Storm back in the 90s. He lived with his grandfather. His grandfather was, he got interested when he saw the results of what my buddy was doing when he was feeding these things. Because guess what? His grandfather didn't think these things existed either until my buddy started feeding them. And then my grandfather, his grandfather started seeing these things. My buddy gets sent to uh, Kuwait. While he's in Kuwait, his grandfather assumes his responsibility and is continuously feeding these things. What people don't know is his grandfather had 80-something goats on his property with five dogs. His grandfather, while my friend was in Kuwait, a severe heart attack. They had to put him in the hospital. Even my friend in Kuwait could not get leave from the Army to come back to take care of his grandfather. Thank God his grandfather recovered. But while his grandfather was in the hospital and while my friend was in Kuwait, once somebody figured out that somebody needs to go out there and feed his livestock, and this was something like a week later. So, okay, you know, well, what's his, you know, I'd rather not mention his name for, you know, his identity purposes. But uh, he's in Kuwait. His uh, grandfather's in the hospital. Let's do the benevolent thing, go out there and feed the goats. They drive out there to the countryside, and when they get there, all the goats are dead. Something had ripped them to pieces. Then all the dogs. All five dogs were ripped to pieces. My buddy hears about it, uh, you know, and he says, you told me not to feed these things. I said, I told you to leave them alone. I said, leave them alone. And what it was, this was their way of not getting their uh, habit. You know, it's like a crackhead or a, a cocaine addict. Once you get them hooked on the cocaine, it's hell to get them off. And then once they're hooked on it, they don't want to get off of it. And then when you're dealing with something like this who has, in my opinion, and I'm not being insulting here. I don't want nobody who listens to this show to think I am. I think these things are, if I had to describe their fit or throwing a fit or becoming dangerous, is like a Dow Syndrome type child. I think that when they pitch a fit, they do it right, and they will. I want to thank Bear for coming on the show. I know we're out of time, but Bear, we really appreciate all of your stories, all of your encounters and sharing with us. Something I wanted to mention, too, uh, to the listeners, that we get a lot of emails about how people just found our show. And what we would appreciate from our listeners is, if you can, to spread the word about the show and help build a, a, a larger audience base. We'd really appreciate that. Yeah, please do. 